0: Good afternoon Memorial Baptist friends and family and welcome back to our midweek edition of our podcast for May 20th 2020. I hope everyone had a blessed a very blessed Lord's Day this past Sunday. You know this afternoon I want to give you a a quick update on what's going on at Memorial and what our plans are as we continue to move forward toward reopening and then I want to pray with and for you And then we're going to dive right into our Bible passage in Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 10. Now, I've been asked so many times over the the last few weeks, when are we going to be meeting again? Uh, When is Memorial going to reopen? Well, I have some good news for you. Our deacons and staff uh, met last evening uh, through a, a Zoom app. And we discussed the possibility of reopening for Sunday morning worship at Memorial. This opening will be for Sunday morning worship only. We've set a tentative date of June 7th for in-person morning worship to begin again. This will give us a little more time to ensure the safety of our most vulnerable Please hear and listen to what I'm saying. Write it down. Don't spread misinformation. If you have questions about this, please call the church for verification. We are tentatively looking at June 7th as our in-person morning worship only start date. This will be phase two of our four-phase plan to reopen. We will be adding other ministries such as Sunday school, youth, college ministry, team kids at a later date in phases 3 and 4 as it becomes safe to do so. Obviously, our ultimate goal is for all of our ministries to be up and running. We'll be sending out a letter uh, this next week to our membership outlining our phase plan for Memorial's reopening. Please help us to do the things that we need to do as we exercise wisdom in moving forward. I am asking for your grace-filled and diligent help as we transition through these phases. I am asking all at-risk individuals, folks with underlying health issues, and those who are most vulnerable and i would include most if not all of our senior adults in that i want to encourage you to keep watching online from your home it's not worth the current risk things will open up more in due time but please 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 be patient i understand it is so hard to be patient We love you, and we want each of you to remain with us as long as possible. I would feel very terrible if a senior adult felt the duty or the commitment to attend church and ended up contracting the virus at one of our services. Let's all exercise wisdom in these circumstances. If you don't feel well, or if you're sick, please stay home and continue to watch online also when we do get together we will be following government distancing recommendations you know the science of disease control shows that wearing a face mask to catch the tiny droplets passed through the air is one of the most effective ways of controlling the spread of this virus we will have masks available for our reopening, and everyone will be encouraged, and I want to say strongly encouraged, strongly recommended to wear one. You know, I don't, I don't like those masks any more than anyone else, but for your safety, when I'm around you, with the exception of while I'm preaching, I will wear one. Again, you are encouraged to follow government distancing guidelines at your comfort level. I'm confident that at some point in the future we will be able to gather and not wear face masks. But until then, let's do our part to protect each other. In light of the the reopening good news that I've just shared, I don't believe that it is prudent for us to have a gathering under the pavilion this Sunday on May 24th. I just want to make this crystal clear. We will not be having a get-together on May 24th. Now, in my enthusiasm as the pastor and my hopefulness, I was a bit premature and optimistic in announcing a church-wide get-together. Now, this event has been canceled and removed from our calendar. Now, in the future, we will plan events when it is safe to do so. Now, I, miss, I miss you all so much, and my heart is for each one of you, and I desire to be with you. I, I hope you understand. I know this is not easy for any of us. I would like for us to pray together, and I encourage you to pray with me while I pray. As, as God puts things on your heart to pray for, as the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, I, I hope that you will voice those prayers. I encourage you to lift up Dr. Edna and Bobby Bridges. They're going through a, a difficult time right now. Um, I know there are other requests that you have. I know that there are many of our family members that are hurting, going through some physical difficulties. So would you please pause with me for a word of prayer and pray with me as I pray. Almighty God and everlasting Father, I want to thank you for your majesty. Thank you for your holiness. Thank you for your perfection. You're always more willing to hear than we are to pray. You've given us everything we need in this life. You created us, you gave us air, you give us food, you give us the necessities of this life. And not only did you give us life, but you also gave us eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. For that, we are truly humbled by your grace and by your mercy. We lift up our family members who are hurting. Your word says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We lift up our nation to you, asking you to push back the darkness, this coronavirus disease, bring healing to those who are infected. God, I ask that you would please spare the lives of men and women from this scourge, from this pestilence. I ask for protection for those who are our frontline workers in the healthcare, lifting up our nurses, our doctors, and their staff that provide care for these COVID 19 patients. Father, I also want to lift up all of those special, extraordinary people who respond to our calls for help, our first responders people like the police, the EMS, firemen, who put their lives on the line every day for the rest of us ordinary folks. Father, I pray your blessing upon them. I pray your protection for them. I pray for wisdom for them. I ask you, O God, for wisdom for our president, for Donald Trump, for Governor Abbott, Father, for our federal, state, and local officials. Father, for our church leadership and and staff. Father, give us all wisdom to know what you desire us to do. May we draw near with confidence to your throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in this time of need. Guide us as we study your word. Holy Spirit, may you use it to transform us. Father, may your Holy Spirit teach us as we continue to seek your face. Thank you for your sacrifice. Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. We love you so, so much. It's our joy to worship you. Guide us. Fill us. Lead us and use us for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's switch gears now and um, jump back into our study of the Holy Bible. We're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. You know, in chapters 1 and 2 of Hebrews, we dealt with, uh, the writer dealt with Jesus being greater than the angels and greater than the prophets. In chapters 3 and 4, the writer dealt with Jesus being greater than Moses. I mean, he was the, Moses was the Jews' favorite and and greatest prophet. Now in in chapter 5, and I want to say chapters 5 through 10, They all deal with Jesus being greater than Aaron, the high priest. We begin here in Hebrews 5, a major section of this book of Hebrews that runs through chapter 10 on Jesus as our high priest. Now, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament to teach that Jesus is our high priest. You know, I would guess that If you were honest, many of you would admit to probably thinking something like, Can't we study something more practical? Come on, Brother Ridge. I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm trying to raise kids in this evil world. I'm wrestling with some personal problems. I'm dealing with the crazy coronavirus world. And now we're going to plunge into six chapters dealing with Jesus as our high priest. Can't you find something a little more relevant to teach on? Paraphrasing Donald Hagner, he said, Until we gain a good sense of the overwhelming majesty of our holy, holy, holy God, while at the same time have a true sense of our own sinfulness and unworthiness, we're not in a position to understand and appreciate the importance of priests and their work. See, our concern, our failure concerning these two points probably is what makes the idea of priesthood unfamiliar and without apparent significance or meaning to us. You know, one of the reasons that the Old Testament is indispensable to understanding the New Testament is this point right here. Since on the one hand... It provides us with a sense of sovereignty and majesty and the power of God, and on the other hand, it confronts us with the reality of human failures and our needs. And in light of these two points, the importance of sacrifices and priests quickly emerge. I mean, one of the most important spiritual truths that you can learn is this: growth in the Christian life requires gaining a clearer understanding of who God is and who you are, which drives you in desperation to the cross of Jesus Christ. When we see God as He truly is, and when we see ourselves as we truly are, we recognize how much, just how very much, we need Jesus and His sacrifice. See, this is why the Apostle Paul, he he gloried in the cross. In Galatians 6, 14, he talks about that. He saw God as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And he saw himself as the chief of sinners. And he saw the cross as the place where he found mercy. So if you want to know the significance of this central theme of the book of Hebrews. You need to ask God for a clearer understanding of His absolute holiness and majesty. And also ask Him for a deeper insight into your own sinfulness and uncleanness apart from Jesus Christ. Folks, this will lead you into a deeper appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross as the high priest who entered the holy place not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And you will find that a deeper appreciation of God's holiness and your own sinfulness and the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice is one of the most practical doctrines in the Bible because it humbles your pride. Pride is at the root of every relational conflict, and just about any sin that you can name. So the theme of our text is Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills the qualifications for the kind of high priest that we all need. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 5. Read with me together. Hebrews 5 beginning in verse 1. It says, For every high priest taken from men, excuse me, from among men, is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Verse 5. So also... Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest but he who said to him you are my son today I have begotten you just as he says also in another passage you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek in the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became, to all those who obey him, the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's stop there. So the first thing I want you to see in this passage is that Jesus was called. Jesus was called. Like the high priests of Israel, Jesus was appointed, like it says in verse 1, that every high priest taken from among men is appointed, okay? He was appointed, he was, like Aaron, the the first high priest, he was called by God to be high priest. We find that in verses 4 and 5. But the writer will point out here and elsewhere that in many ways Jesus was unlike Aaron and the other high priests. The distinction is illustrated through the two quotes from the Psalms in verses 5 and 6. The writer used the first quote, the one from Psalm 2-7, which he used earlier in Hebrews 1-5. As we saw in that part of our study, the Lord was originally addressing the Davidic king of Israel. He was begotten when he was enthroned. Jesus was enthroned when he ascended to the Father. So what is this talk about the enthronement of a king doing in the middle of a talk about a priest? Again, it's to show that Jesus was also a king, a kingly priest that means our priest is sovereign and that there is no question as to the effectiveness of his mediation now psalm 110 which the writer quotes from in verse 6 originally united the concept of king and priest together the first three verses concerned the davidic king who the Lord addresses in verse 4 as a priest. Jesus is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now in chapter 7, the writer will have much more to say about Melchizedek, a figure from the Old Testament who was in some ways a foreshadowing of Christ. So we'll save that discussion for then. But for now, it's enough to note, as the writer does, that the significance of the priesthood of Christ is that it is an eternal one. The priesthood of Christ is an eternal one. The point of Hebrews 5, 6 is that Jesus, the priest who is also a king, is also an eternal priest. See, the implication of this is huge. (laughs) Huh. His mediation on our behalf is not only effective but it's everlasting. I mean, what we have in Jesus, we have forever. Hallelujah! What a what a wonderful thing! Praise God! See the larger point of Hebrews four, and the, one, and then also five chapters, or chapter five, verses four through six, and even f- chapter five, verse ten is that Jesus was appointed, or he was called by God to be a priest, an unquestionably effective and everlasting high priest, a great high priest. In the broader context of the entire passage, Jesus was called by God to be an effective and everlasting high priest who is compassionate. See, verses 5 through 7 are actually only one sentence in the Greek. Verses 5 and 6 focus on the calling of Christ, and verse 7 focuses on his capacity for compassion. The three verses taken together bring home the point that Jesus was called by God to be compassionate. Compassionate, called by God, effective, and eternal. See, in that Jesus was called by God... In that, he did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. He did not offer himself up as the solution. Now, follow me. Here's the deal. We have a problem. Our problem is guilt. No one denies the problem. Even those who say that guilt is not real but imaginary can't deny the problem. Different solutions to the problem are offered. The the popular secular answer is to dismiss guilt as, you know, number one, something that was imposed uh, by your parents or the church or by the culture, number two, to address the problem by examining its roots, and then number three, to overcome the illusion of guilt with positive self-esteem. Solutions like these are offered up by psychologists. What I'm telling you is Jesus did not offer up a solution. He was called by God. He is God's solution. We need something. We have a problem. We need someone that, can, that we can trust with this huge problem of ours. We can trust Jesus. He is God's authoritative answer to the problem of guilt He deals with it compassionately, effectively, and I think the best part, eternally. If we have a big problem, don't we want to find the right solution? What I'm saying is that Jesus is it. He is the answer to that problem we have. Jesus was called by God to be our high priest, but he's also our sympathetic compassionate high priest. See, the high priest of Israel could sympathize with the plight of their brothers because they were human and they faced temptation. Their humanity, in fact, qualified them to, quote, offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. They were, quote, taken from among men and because of that they were able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided. See, the high priest, being human, they were beset with weakness or subject to weakness, meaning subject to sinning. And because they were guilty of sin, they had to make offerings for their own sins in addition to those of the people. The writer of Hebrews intends for us to understand this correlation between the high priests of Israel and our great high priest, but the writer doesn't mean it to imply that the correlation is exactly the same. Later, he will tell us that Jesus did not have to offer a multitude of gifts and sacrifice, but instead he made a once-for-all offering. Jesus was never subject to the weakness of those uh, high priests of Israel or to sin and did not need to offer any sacrifice for his own sin like they did because he was without sin. Like the other high priests, however, he does make an offering for sins. We we call it a once-for-all offering. And although he was not beset with sin... He is able to sympathize with our predicament because of his exposure to temptation. So from the historic precedent of the high priest of Israel, a precedent established by the Lord in his word, we can see that Jesus was taken from among men being one of us. And that he offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people, and that he is able to deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided, and that he is sympathetic concerning our own sinful state. See, the thread through all of this actions and abilities is sympathy or, or compassion. Jesus, obviously, to a greater degree than the other high priests, deals with us gently. I mean, we're all frail creatures of dust. And in this world, we get treated roughly. We're beaten, we're reprimanded, we're often devastated. And here's our, another part of our problem is we assume that God gives us the same treatment. That because we are treated this way in the world, that, that he is stern and demanding and exacting and ready to crack the whip at the least indiscretion. But I say this, look to Jesus. Look at him. He deals with us gently. He knows how difficult it is for us to believe God. He deals with us and our sin gently with a heart of compassion. See, our problem may be that we don't think he deals with us gently. We may think that he's harsh, Like everyone else, but he isn't. He deals gently with those, it says, who are ignorant and misguided. Uh, Folks, that would be us. That's us he's talking about. Those who are ignorant and misguided. Listen. Ignorance and susceptibility to misguidance go hand in hand. One who is ignorant is easily misled. To a certain degree, we are all ignorant. I mean, the truth of God and who He is hasn't penetrated and permeated our being to its fullest extent. So we can be led away from God, away from our dependence upon Him. Like the hymn writer Robert Robinson says, In Come Thou Fount. He says, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. See, when that happens, and when we feel the weight of our inability, we have a high priest, a great and compassionate high priest. Let me give you kind of a reverse illustration You know, in college, I had a New Testament professor um, who shall remain nameless uh, to protect the guilty uh, who taught us Greek. He was one of these guys who could pick up a language in about two months. I think he was like a linguist specialist or something. And he did not have a clue what a guy like me went through trying to learn Greek. And so when I would ask the good doctor uh, to explain something that I didn't understand, the way that he would explain it to me, the Greek principles of grammar and linguistics, he would repeat to me what he had just said, louder than he had said it before, drawing it out, almost exaggerating it to the point of making me feel inadequate and sometimes even feel stupid. He would laugh and say things like, you have to put the right emphasis on the right syllable. He could not conceive of someone so ignorant as to not understand what he had said the first time. What I needed, though, was somebody who had suffered some learning Greek to help me in Greek. And thank you, Lord, there was a student like that who had some real struggles himself in learning Greek. And he helped all the other students because he had this little system that he introduced to us to help us get over our particular obstacles. He understood what we were going through because what he had been through. He had had a tough time learning Greek. But I guarantee you, this professor... Oh yeah, he was smart, but he didn't have a clue. See, the interesting thing about this is that the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that Jesus did not sin. So how is it that he can understand our weakness? I want you to hone in on Hebrews verse 8 he gives us the clue he says although he was a son he learned obedience from the things which he suffered how is it that he understands our weakness because he endured the suffering he has learned obedience through that which he has suffered even though he was the very son of God So Christ's weakness was not sinfulness and it was not inheriting a fallen nature. Christ's weakness was found in the fact that the way that the Lord chose to prepare him to be sympathetic to his people was to allow him to be a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. You know, when we study the Gospels, Every range of human emotion is attributed to our Lord, except lightheartedness and laughter. I don't think that is because our Lord didn't have a sense of humor. I think it was because he was a man from his very earliest years who was acquainted with grief and sorrow. And he was a man who was never very far from the shadow of the cross that was cast over his own life. And so the emotions that are described of Christ in the New Testament, they are very tender and very fully human. They are predominantly emotions which we experience when we are in the greatest trials and temptations of our life. See, there's a wonderful article written by B.B. Warfield It's called The Emotional Life of Our Lord that studies precisely this great point. But you see, Christ is able to sympathize. And the author of Hebrews argues because of his suffering. So what do we learn from all of this? I would say first we learn that we ought to be confident in God's grace, because he has provided us a priest who is able to sympathize with us, who is able to represent us because of that which he has experienced. See, there's no need of some sort of supplemental priestly mediation on our behalf because Christ is our priest and he knows fully what it is to enter into our human experience very often people think that they need someone more human than the lord jesus christ the son of god to relate so that they can relate to him in their in their pursuit of god but christ was just as human as we are yet without sin the lord jesus christ through his suffering is able to sympathize with us and deal with us gently. Oh, brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is great news. His ability to sympathize is best illustrated by his own life, to which the writer refers uh, in verses 7 through 10. See, the writer speaks of the days of his flesh, which would be the days of Jesus' life on earth. When he walked on the earth and he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Oh, this is likely a reference to the experience of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was very distressed and troubled where his soul became deeply grieved to the point of death, where his sweat became like drops of blood, and where he asked the Father to remove this cup from me, meaning the death of the cross. But Jesus also prayed in the garden, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Holy Father, your will be done. See, the father did not remove the cup. The father who was able to save him from the cross did not do that. He did not save him from the cross. But the father heard him, as the writer of Hebrews says. The father heard that the son was willing to drink the cup if that's what the father wanted. And Jesus was heard by the father Because of his piety, it says. That's in verse 7. Really, that word would better be translated awe. As in, he was in awe of God. How could anyone offer a prayer, offer up a prayer that expressed a willingness to endure the cross, which meant separation from the Father, unless absolutely unless he was in awe of the Father and found him totally trustworthy. See, the cross wasn't Jesus' preference, but it was what he received from the Father. So now I ask the question, do we know something about this? Do we know something about receiving from the Father that which we don't or didn't prefer? If we do, we have a friend in Jesus. He knows all about suffering as life takes an awful turn for the worse. He knows all about wanting and not getting. He knows more than any of us. He knows all about groping. For God in the dark, as we grope, as we question, as we doubt, he is with us each step of the way, and he is sympathetic and compassionate. He was a son, God's son, the king, but he suffered. Folks, this is no ordinary king living a life of privilege while his subjects suffer this is a king who does something about the suffering this is a king who suffers himself this is a king who is also a priest he learned obedience from his suffering and i ask how is that that jesus learned obedience i mean certainly he was never disobedient But learning something doesn't necessarily imply prior failure. In this context, he learned obedience to his call as a priest. See, apart from suffering, obedience isn't tested. Jesus was tested. The greater the suffering, the greater the obedience. He was obedient. Right down to the end when he refused to come down from the cross, though it was in his power to do so. The fact that he suffered simply qualifies him all the more for his role. Suffering increases the capacity for compassion, for sympathy, and for mercy. See, Jesus suffered more than anyone. And Jesus is more compassionate than anyone. So he was made perfect. He was made complete. He was, again, this does not imply that Jesus was ever imperfect, that he at one point dabbled in sin or something. It means that Jesus, because of his obedience through suffering, was consecrated or qualified to be our great high priest. He, quote, became to all those who obey him. The source of eternal salvation. Verse 9. His obedience to the Father and his fidelity to his call as high priest calls for our obedience to him. Those who obey Jesus are obviously not those who never sin. If that were the case, if those who obey Jesus are those who never sin, why would they need a high priest? No, for the writer of Hebrews, the obedience he calls for is equated with faith. Those who believe in Jesus, who accept his sacrifice on their behalf, are saved by him. Now let me just say one more thing before we close. Isn't it interesting here that it is stressed that he is a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek? This point is going to be picked up again in Hebrews 7 for a very important reason. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. No Levitical priests were from the tribe of Judah. They were all from the tribe of Levi. How can the Messiah be king and son of David and be from the tribe of Judah, and at the same time be priest, because the priest could only be from the tribe of Levi. See, the author of Hebrews is giving us an answer as to how this can be so. Since since the Messiah is not a priest according to the tribe of Levi, he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This passage reminds us that Christ in his priestly work earned our salvation. We have said it before, salvation is by works, but not our works, but Christ's works. And so for us, salvation is, is only by grace because it it is for the work of Christ that God the Father spares us as we trust in Him. So our salvation is sure because the Father will not deny His Son. So hopefully now we see Jesus a little more clearly. Why would we want to go anywhere else? Why would we leave that no one else is this compassionate, no one else is this authoritative, no one else can deal with our sin compassionately and authoritatively. Cling to Jesus, because in Him we have a high priest who was appointed by God to be sympathetic with our difficulties in our humanity wow thank you Lord for your word thank you for providing all of this sumptuous feast for us I want to thank you so much for tuning in next week we will continue our study in Hebrews chapter 5 talking more about our great and perfect high priest until then I just want to say stay safe practice good hygiene uh Stay studied up in God's word. Eat well. Get some exercise. And whatever you do, give God all the praise and glory and honor that is due his name. Folks, let's make Jesus famous. God loves you and we love you. Be blessed.